Approach pain relief from the ground up with Curex. Curex makes highly customizable over-the-counter insoles thanks to their dynamic arch technology, which provides different support for different arch types. They were developed by German scientists for the specific foot movements of various activities delivering the right support and cushion where it's needed the most. Curex makes the largest selection of activity-specific insoles for running, hiking, golfing, biking, soccer, tennis, or solely for walking and everyday wear. That's the Curex difference, and it can make a difference for your patients. For a free sample, email curexinside at curex.us. That's C-U-R-R-E-X inside at curex.us. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today on JOSPT Insights, Chelsea and I are reaching out to an expert physician and orthopedic surgeon to learn more about meniscal injuries, how different types of meniscal tears influence rehabilitation, important considerations for meniscal repair rehab, and how we as rehab professionals can work together to improve patient care. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at True Sports Physical Therapy in Baltimore, Maryland as well. Dr. James Dries is a graduate of the Pennsylvania State University College of Medicine. He has notable experience as the orthopedic team physician for multiple Maryland universities and has served as the associate orthopedic team physician for the Baltimore Ravens for the past nine years. His clinical practice focuses on non-arthroplastic shoulder, knee, and hamstring injuries. Dr. Dries, I do believe you are the first physician that Chelsea and I have had the pleasure of interviewing. Awesome. Well, thank you. I'm honored. We are honored to have you. Thank you so much for joining us on JOSPT Insights. Your expertise in meniscus injuries and repairs is just so valuable, and we are so excited to be able to share it with more of the rehab community so that we can best treat these patients. Before we get into the fine details, let's just set the scene here and just simply lay out the anatomy of the meniscus. So in general, the menisci on both the medial and lateral sides of the knee are both C-shaped. They work by dissipating force across the joint surface, and they do that both through the dissipation through the radial and circumferential fibers, but also through the meniscal root attachments. So I think in the last 10 to 15 years, our understanding of that has increased dramatically with a better understanding of how the meniscal root attachments work, how detachment of those affects the knee, but all those things come into play in better understanding how the orientation of the tear and the size of the tear affect the ability to get healing uh, to occur and also how weight bearing affects those different types of tears. You talked about the the root, uh, the meniscal root attachments. Can you talk about where those are in the meniscus? For the most part, the posterior root attachment on the medial side is directly adjacent to the PCL. And on the lateral side, it's somewhat variable, but it lies in general, just lateral and posterior to the uh, tibial footprint of the ACL. So the, the lateral side attaches more anteriorly, the medial side more posteriorly next to the PCL. Okay. And then also, is there, there's a function of stability that, that the meniscus also serves. Is that correct? Good point. And I think that is one of the more recent revelations that we've come to understand better with respect to meniscal root tears. What we've seen 
in biomechanical studies and also clinically is that both of those posterior root attachments on the medial and the lateral side affect the stability of the knee significantly. So we've known for 10 to 15 years that the ability to be able to dissipate force across the knee and absorb stress is dependent upon the meniscus and that the meniscal root affects that. What we've learned more recently though, is that we know the association between posterior root lateral meniscal tears and ACL tears, for instance. What we also know now, now based on good studies looking at stability is that having a posterior root tear on the lateral side will increase your pivot shift, will cause more rotational instability in the knee. Similarly, on the medial side, that's been shown as well. So there's a stability component to those meniscal root attachments that we didn't necessarily have a great understanding of previously that's becoming more clear, all of which points to the importance of being able to preserve the meniscal root attachments in both stable and unstable knees. Can you dive a little deeper into that relationship between the medial and lateral meniscus and the ACL? Yes. Um, as I mentioned previously, the posterior root of the lateral meniscus is most commonly injured in conjunction with ACL tears. So with an ACL tear, you get an excessive internal rotation, a pivot of the tibia relative to the femur, and that puts a lot of tension. We know for long time that lateral meniscal tears are more common with acute ACL injuries. And this is also the same mechanism that causes posterior root lateral meniscus tears. It's become more evident the last 10 years or so when we continue to see patients who come in with lateral-sided knee pain after having had an ACL reconstruction, their knee's stable, but they have lateral-sided or posterolateral knee pain. Those are patients with posterior root lateral meniscus tears that with repair, those go away. I have a fairly large series of those patients now, and that association is very clear. Clear both from a pain standpoint, but also a stability standpoint, we think that those patients are probably at higher risk for re-injuring their ACL graft if their posterior root is not restored because of the, ex the excessive rotation that continues to occur. So that the lateral-sided tears are typically that. Sometimes they will occur in an isolated fashion in, in which typically that presents with a patient who has lateral knee pain, has never really had a major trauma, but they have lateral knee pain. They may even have an early cartilage degeneration on their lateral side. That oftentimes is the root of a lateral, is the result of a lateral meniscal root tear. The medial side is a different phenomenon. They can happen in relation to a big varus force on the knee. So a more direct blow to the knee in which the ACL and or PCL may be damaged. The lateral side, they may have a posterolateral corner injury, but they get a compression injury on the medial side, which can cause failure of their medial meniscal root. And then the group that the medial meniscal roots are most common in are kind of the mid to aged population of people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s who basically have some early degenerative change in their medial compartment and then go on to suffer a radial tear, oftentimes not exactly at the root insertion, but sometimes just a little bit more medial to it within five to seven millimeters. But those behave biomechanically in the same way as a uh, meniscal root tear. You just mentioned a radial tear. Can you talk about the different types of tears and their directions and how they're related to the meniscus? I think that's going to be an important thing to lay out. If we've learned anything from all these different studies, it's that different meniscal tears behave differently, require different treatment, and ultimately have a different prognosis. It goes back to, it, it points out historically to why some patients did so poorly with partial meniscectomy. And there are good reasons for that now based on a better understanding of the meniscus. So when you think about the meniscus as being C-shaped, 
the different types of tear patterns are really in relation to the way in which the tear traverses through the meniscus. A, a peripheral longitudinal tear is circumferent along the circumferential fibers, creates, if it gets big enough, the bucket handle tear that we've all known about. And that's a tear that when reduced, early weight bearing actually does not have a detrimental effect on that. So circumferential tears do that. Radial tears we mentioned, those can be either at the root insertion, they can be within the substance of the meniscus, typically on the medial side. Adolescents sometimes get them on the lateral side at more of the junction of the body and the anterior third. But what a radial tear does is it completely dissociates the circumferential fibers and in effect, it makes the knee behave as if it's been completely meniscectomized. So debriding those tears leads to universally poor outcomes. Repair is really the only option there that, that has any hope of being able to restore more normal forces to the knee. And then we have oh, sort of more complex oblique components, which have components of both of those tear types. But in effect, if they, if they traverse all the way through the circumferential fibers, they behave more like a radial tear does. Degenerative tears, which are more undersurface tears that are relatively complex, involve the more central part of the meniscus. The blood supply to the meniscus over time recedes toward the, towards the periphery. And we see that on MRI, we see less, less vascularity and more inherent degeneration within the central part of the meniscus, which is in large part why that's a more common tear in an aging population. And in younger patients, the, the blood supply is very peripheral. They tend to get more peripheral tears, which historically we've always known are much more repairable. But certainly I think with a better understanding of how these other meniscal orientations affect uh, the long-term function of the knee, repair of even some of these radial and other variants that we traditionally didn't think of as being the best candidates for repair, repair is the best option for those patients because meniscectomy is devastating. And we're starting to see that more universally accepted and uh, implemented across sports medicine. There's been a much stronger understanding of what the significance of partial meniscectomy is in some of these tear patterns and just how detrimental it can be to the function of the knee, both short-term and long-term. And so are there tears that you would recommend meniscectomy for as opposed to going with meniscal repair? Certainly. I, I still think there's a lot of tears that, that are just not amenable, and it's largely dictated by the quality of the tissue. So many of these more chronic tears or the central tears that are within that central third to half of the meniscus itself are badly degenerated. The tissues of very poor quality. It wouldn't hold a suture even if you tried. And I think that's the challenge is, I mean, we know that the recovery following repair is much longer. So the biology and the tear pattern has to dictate that that is worth the extended recovery uh, in doing so. And, and some tears, particularly in older patients, are just simply not amenable to that. So still a significant number of tears, particularly the undersurface tears in which simply cleaning up the, the badly torn portion and saving as much of the intact and, and functional remnant as possible is the right option. So how do these influence what we should be doing from a rehab perspective, especially in the beginning, especially in regard to range of motion and weight bearing? I feel like across the board, we get varying amounts of information about actually what repair was performed and then varying amounts of information about what the surgeon would prefer that we do protocol-wise. So how, how do you decide that? For me, it really goes back to back to the anatomy of the tear and the way in which the, the way that that tear affects the knee joint, how it's affected by early weight bearing, how it's affected by range of motion. So 
for starters, most meniscal tears are posterior. They're going to be loaded more in flexion. So that's why we protect flexion, use 90 degrees for the first four weeks. But it's simply because the posterior tears get loaded more in higher degrees of flexion, and lower degrees of flexion should affect them much less. In terms of weight bearing, that is really dictated by the orientation of the tear and the way in which that tear is stressed by, by early weight bearing. For instance, a peripheral longitudinal tear, bucket handle tear, once that's reduced and really securely fixed with suture, early weight bearing and extension should actually have a positive effect and not a negative effect on that because it should help to compress the tear against the meniscocapsular junction and not have a distracting effect. Obviously, if you weight bear in, in flexion on that early, that, that can be different. Um, but even arthroscopically, what we see is once you reduce these tears, if you keep the knee extended, these tears stay reduced. It's only once you flex the knee that you start to see the distracting force and displacement of it once again. So I'll let those people, they can do 50% weight bearing as far as I'm concerned in extension from day one. And then after four weeks, kind of progress with that and let them really progress more to full weight bearing for six weeks. The other thing is it's only practical to keep a person limited weight bearing for for so long. I, mean, I don't think that for three months we can really try to re reasonably try to do that. Four weeks is sort of the limit of me keeping someone toe touch weight bearing. I think after that, it becomes very difficult to get people who are uh, compliant with that. And then, of course, the other, the other type of tear, though, that is very different is any one of the radial components. Because in effect, any weight bearing on that early is going to have a distracting effect at the repair site. So those are the repairs that I think need to be protected most that have potentially the most uh, risk with early weight bearing. Those are people that will keep toe touch weight bearing. I always tell people, I think non-weight bearing is not realistic. Toe touch weight bearing is realistic. The other part is trying to progressively increase weight bearing, not going from none all but spending two weeks of trying to be 50% weight-bearing as much as possible for people who have enough shoulder strength to be able to, to maintain that and to work through the progression, I think that definitely helps them rather than having them go from nothing to everything. That can be a very difficult transition. But I think if you think about the anatomy of the tear, it, it gives us all a better understanding of what the effect of weight-bearing is going to be. And as I said, really some good evidence that shows that for longitudinal peripheral tears, early weight bearing certainly doesn't have a detrimental effect and it may actually have a positive effect. And so it's not entirely uncommon that PTs may receive the same meniscal rehab protocol from a surgeon time after time after time. And so since we've talked about how there is a fair bit of nuance here, depending on the type of tear, the location, quality of tissue, what have you, how do you recommend PTs reach out to surgeons in this case to open up that dialogue about making modifications to weight-bearing status, range of motion restrictions, et cetera, depending on the type of tear and the repair performed? These are different entities that really are affected differently by each of those factors that we talked about of range of motion and weight-bearing. Oftentimes, this is anecdotal in terms of the types of protocols that, that are followed, and some of them may be somewhat outdated. but I do think that there, there's also significant consideration, though, within those tear types of, of what the tissue was like, what the quality of the repair is like. Uh, I, I mean, I tell people all the time that I, I think that delaying someone's weight bearing because you didn't get a very good quality repair is not likely to lead to a more successful outcome in the long run. That's someone who's going to fail early versus fail late. But I think just opening you know, a line of communication with regard to 
the the orientation of the tear, the way in which it was repaired. And oftentimes for me, it has to do with a patient's ability to be able to regain motion and to ambulate. So if somebody really is having a hard time ambulating and we're worried that they're going to have a significant fall or another problem, I'll just simply let them wait there. If somebody has a lot of shoulder problems, using crutches and being toe-touch weight-bearing or a rolling walker or anything else is going to have some potential risk and downside associated with it. So those are certainly people that I would accelerate through the protocol. And the other thing is that people who are really stiff or having a hard time getting you know, even to 45, 50 degrees of motion, I will take them out of the brace right away with that and let them just try to ambulate with crutches to try to simulate more normal gait patterns. But I think there definitely has to be some flexibility in in the protocol that that really is directed at how well the patient's rehabbing. Are there any other considerations that you want to let physical therapists or rehab professionals know about what you love to see, what you don't love to see from us who are rehabbing patients with meniscal repairs? One of the things we see more recently now are the treatment of horizontal tears, even in older patients. And we've always thought that those horizontal tears could only be treated with meniscectomy. And, and certainly we've seen some pretty bad results from those. So repairing those, I think, is helpful. And for me, I see people all the time for second, third, fourth opinions, because I think it's important to encourage our patients to get multiple opinions to better understand how di- what different treatments are available, how those are likely to affect them, and let them make a decision about ultimately what they feel is best for them. So I tell patients all the time that, and, and PTs all the time, if someone comes to see you who's had some kind of a relatively innocuous injury to their knee, where now all of a sudden they have a lot of posterior knee pain and likely a small effusion, they don't have a hamstring strain, they have a meniscal root tear. That that diagnosis was missed all the time before. The awareness for that has gotten much better. So we're picking them up more. Now we're having more of a conversation about how do you treat it versus what's the diagnosis. Uh, there have been some good studies recently that I think really address this problem, looking at basically patients in whom meniscal root tears occurred at some point, and they were treated in one of three ways. They either were treated with observation alone, they were treated with partial meniscectomy, or they had meniscal root repairs. And clearly, the group that does the best is the group with the meniscal root repairs. It has the best function, the lowest progression of osteoarthritis, the lowest risk of knee replacement. But interestingly, the patients in whom nothing was done actually do better than the patients in whom meniscectomies performed. So a big part of the understanding here is to get clinicians to really understand the fact that meniscectomy is absolutely the wrong choice in those patients. And it gets back to the concept that different tears need to be treated differently. Are there certain tears or types of tears that you think respond better to conservative care than surgery? Certainly. I mean, a a significant number of patients with meniscal, particularly horizontal tears, horizontal tears historically have not done great with surgery in part because removal of them can lead to a significant deficiency and and a pretty rapid progression of arthritic change as well. That's led to some of the interest in repairing these more recently, which I talked about, but certainly a horizontal tear, I will try physical therapy for And it's somewhat dictated by how debilitated the patient is. I mean, if someone can't put their weight down whatsoever, that's going to be a hard one. But someone who's managing it pretty well and just having some soreness from time to time, I'll send those patients to physical therapy. 
the complete radial tears, I, I think, is detrimental to try physical therapy beforehand, just because the progression of the arthritis that can occur with those relatively quickly. But many of the other degenerative tears, horizontal tears, flap tears, a lot of those other tears, we'll try physical therapy for initially to, to see if, if patients can turn the corner. And sometimes it can at least make them better to the point where it doesn't limit them that much. And they might need to later think about doing something, but there's not an insignificant number of people that ultimately will decide to treat that non-operatively and do quite well. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago that these meniscal root tears in particular have, historically speaking, been missed on diagnosis relatively uh, commonly. Why do you think that is? So in the past, historically, it was related to the resolution of the MRI. So it wasn't long ago that standard MRIs were one Tesla. It's really only been in the last, you know, probably five to seven years, that three Tesla magnets have become much more common. But 15, 20 years ago, one Tesla magnets were employed, then up to 1.2, 1.5. But with the resolution that was available that way, it was difficult to see some of these tears. It wasn't uncommon that it wasn't completely definitive on MRI whether a patient had a meniscal tear or not, if it was a smaller tear. Today, with the resolution of the images that we have, it really is, is quite apparent. Medial meniscal root tears are generally very apparent. They lead to actually extrusion of the meniscus in addition to the radial component of the tear. So some basic education about MRI interpretation makes that very apparent. The harder diagnosis are the lateral meniscal root tears. So the posterior root tears on the lateral side can be missed. The meniscus does not extrude, so we don't see the secondary changes. The femoral ligament stays attached to it, and you don't see the extrusion. We've done a study that did, that showed that basically about half to two-thirds of these were missed by the reporting radiologist at the time of the MRI. And that's always a difficult conversation to have with the patient is that your MRI is not completely diagnostic of what the problem is. And there's actually another injury, it looks like. And just having a discussion with patients that it just it needs to be evaluated at the time of your treatment. And if it's torn, it needs to be fixed. I think the diagnostic acumen for that has gotten somewhat better. We're getting better at it, but we're not perfect. I think I'm a whole lot better at it than I used to be, but they still get missed. And there still has to be a very high index of suspicion for those injuries. But certainly the improvement of the resolution of the MRIs and a better understanding of different types of meniscal tears has led to much better diagnostic accuracy preoperatively. But the days of kind of looking inside a knee and seeing a big meniscus tear that you couldn't see otherwise on MRI have largely passed with the better resolution of the newer newer imaging sequences. If we're evaluating a patient and suspect a meniscal tear, where do you feel the line is as far as referring to an orthopedist for consultation, uh, particularly as you've noted that different types of tears are more amenable to conservative care while others would likely benefit more from uh, a surgical approach uh, earlier on? If it's, if it's something that's an intermittent soreness or something that they're functioning quite well with, I wouldn't push them really hard to get an MRI right away. But I think if, if it's something that, that's failing to improve with therapy, something that's been, that leads to more of an antalgic gait or an effusion, I think an effusion is always a bad sign for tears like that. Um, more significant findings where their ambulatory capacity is really, in, really inhibited. I would get an MRI because in general, those can be chondral injuries, those can be meniscal tears. But for a patient who has really minimal effusion, good motion, and some soreness with activity, 
that's certainly a situation in my hands that trying therapy for initially is is pretty warranted. You mentioned that people with persistent lateral knee pain, persistent posterior knee pain, that there was a missed meniscal, meniscal tear in there. What is the red flag to be able to send back to the physician about, I think something was missed in here, or I'm concerned about something? It's tough. I mean, I think if, uh, particularly if they're having persistent pain or pain that just doesn't make sense, I think oftentimes these things just don't fit into a good pattern for you know, patients with meniscal root tears that would come in with, with a hamstring diagnosis, but yet they didn't have any pain with resisted knee flexion and they had an effusion in their knee. I mean, I think when things like that just don't make sense, it's time to look at it again. And sometimes that means getting a better MRI of the knee. So not infrequently, if I see someone for a second opinion and they've had a relatively non-diagnostic or difficultly diagnostic MRI of the knee, the next step for that is to send those patients to get a more definitive MRI of their knee to make sure that they're able to get a more definitive diagnosis. And so I think that wraps it for this episode. Dr. James Dries, thank you so much for joining us on JOSPT Insights. Great. Thank you. I enjoyed it. As always, we hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you for listening to JOSPT Insights. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.